Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. Until he was nearly arrived at adolescence, it did not become clear to Kipps how it was that he was under the care of an aunt, an uncle, instead of having a mother and father like other boys. Yet he had vague memories of somewhere else that was not New Romney, of a dim room, a window looking down on white buildings, and of someone else who talked to forgotten people, and who was his mother. He could not recall her features very distinctly, but he remembered with extreme definition a white dress she wore, with a pattern of little sprigs of flowers and little bows of ribbons upon it, and a girdle of straight-ribbed white ribbon around the waist. Linked with this, he knew not how, were clouded half-obliterated recollections of scenes in which there was weeping, weeping in which he was inscrutably moved to join, Some terrible tall man with a loud voice played a part in these scenes, and either before or after them, there were impressions of looking for interminable periods out of the window of railway trains in the company of these two people. He knew, though he could not remember that he had ever been told, that a certain faded, wistful face that looked at him from a plush and gilt-framed daguerreotype above the mantle of the sitting room, was the face of his mother, but that knowledge did not touch his dim memories with any elucidation. In that photograph, she was a girlish figure, leaning against a photographer's style, and with all the self-conscious shrinking natural to that position. She had curly hair and a face far younger and prettier than any other mother in his experience. She swung a Dolly Varden hat by the string and looked with obedient, respectful eyes on the photographer gentleman who had commanded the pose. She was very slight and pretty. But the phantom mother that haunted his memory so elusively was not like that, though he could not remember how she differed. Perhaps she was older, or a little less shrinking, or it may be only dressed in a different way. It is clear she handed him over to his aunt and uncle at New Romney with explicit directions and a certain endowment. One gathers she had something of that fine sense of social distinctions that subsequently played a large part in Kip's career. He was not to go to a common school. She provided, but to a certain seminary in Hastings that was not only a middle-class academy with mortar boards and every evidence of a higher social tone, but also remarkably cheap. She seems to have been animated by the desire to do her best for Kipps, even at a certain sacrifice of herself, as though Kipps were in some way a superior sort of person. She sent pocket money to him from time to time, for a year or more after Hastings had begun for him, but her face he never saw in the days of his lucid memory. His aunt and uncle were already high on the hill of life when first he came to them. They had married for comfort in the evenings, 
or at any rate in the late afternoon of their days. They were at first no more than vague figures in the background of proximate realities, such realities as familiar chairs and tables, the newel of the staircase, kitchen furniture, pieces of firewood, the boiler trap, old newspapers, the cat, the high street, the backyard, and the flat fields that are always so near in the little town. He knew all the stones in the yard individually, the creeper in the corner, the dustbin and the mossy wall, better than many men know the faces of their wives. There was a corner under the ironing board, which by means of a shawl could under propitious gots be made a very decent cubby house, a corner that served him for several years as the indisputable hub of the world and the stringy places in the carpet, the knots upon the dresser, the several corners of the rug his uncle had made, became essential parts of his mental foundations. The shop he did not know so thoroughly, it was a forbidden region to him, yet somehow he managed to know it very well. His aunt and uncle were, as it were, the immediate gods of this world. And like the gods of the world of old, occasionally descended right into it with arbitrary injunctions and disproportionate punishments. And unhappily, one rose to their Olympian levels at meals, and one had to say one's grace, hold one's spoon and fork in mad, unnatural ways, and refrain from eating even nice sweet things too fast. If he gobbled, there was trouble, and at the slightest abandon with knife and fork and spoon, his aunt wrapped his knuckles albeit his uncle always finished up his gravy with his knife. Sometimes, moreover, his uncle would come, pipe in hand, out of a sedentary remoteness in the most disconcerting way, and his aunt would appear at the door and window to interrupt interesting conversations with children who were upon unknown grounds considered low and undesirable and call him in. The pleasantest little noises, however softly you did them, Drumming on tea trays, trumpeting your fists, whistling on keys, ringing chimes with a couple of pails, or playing tunes on the window panes, brought down the gods in anger. Yet what noise is fainter than your finger on the window? Sometimes, however, these gods gave him broken toys out of the shop, and then one loved them better. For the shop they kept was, among other things, a toy shop. The other things included books to read and books to give away, and local photographs. It had some pretensions also, and the fascia spoke of glass. It was also a stationer shop, with a touch of haberdashery about it, and in the windows and odd corners were mats and terracotta dishes, and milking stools for painting, and there was a hint of picture frames and fire screens and fishing tackle and air guns, and bathing suits, and tents. Various things, indeed, but all cruelly attractive to a small boy's fingers. Once his aunt gave him a trumpet, if he would promise faithfully not to blow it, and afterwards it was took away again. And his aunt made him say his catechism, in something she certainly called colic for the day, every Sunday in the year. As the two grew old, while he grew up, and as his impression of them modified insensibly, 
from year to year. It seemed to him at last that they had always been as they were when, in his adolescent days, his impression of things grew fixed. His aunt he always thought of as always lean, rather worried-looking, and prone to a certain obliquity of cap, and his uncle massive, many chin, and careless about his buttons. They neither visited nor received visitors. They were always very suspicious about their neighbours, and other people generally. They feared the loathe, and they hated and despised the stuck-up, and so they kept to themselves, according to the English ideal. Consequently, little Kipps had no playmates, except through the sin of disobedience. By inherent nature, he had a sociable disposition. When he was in the high street, he made a point of saying hello to passing cyclists. He would put his tongue out at coodling children whenever their nursemaid was not looking, and he began a friendship with Sid Pornick, the son of the haberdasher next door, that with wide intermissions was destined to last his lifetime through. Pornick, the haberdasher, I may say at once, was, according to old Kipps, a blaring jackass. He was a teetotaler, and altogether distasteful and detrimental. This Pornick certainly possessed an enormous voice, and he annoyed old Kipps greatly. He annoyed old Kipps by private choral services on Sundays, and by the mushroom culture, by behaving as though the plaster between the two shops was common property, by making a noise of hammering in the afternoon, when old Kipps wanted to be quiet after his midday meal, by going up and down uncarpeted stairs in his boots, by having a black beard, by attempting to be friendly, and by all that sort of thing. In fact, he annoyed old Kipps. He annoyed him especially with his shop doormat. Old Kipps never beat his doormat, preferring to let sleeping dust lie, and seeking a motive for a foolish proceeding. He held that Pornick waited until there was a suitable wind in order that the dust disengaged in that operation might defile his neighbour's shop. These issues would frequently develop into loud and vehement quarrels, and on one occasion came so near to violence as to be subsequently described by Pornick as a disgraceful fracas. On that occasion he certainly went into his own shop with extreme celerity. But it was through one of these quarrels that the friendship of Little Kipps and Sid Pornick became a belt. The two small boys found themselves one day, looking through the gate at the doctor's goats together. They exchanged a few contradictions about which goat could fight which, and then young Kipps was moved to remark that Sid's father was a blaring jackass. Sid said he wasn't, and Kipps repeated that he was, and quoted his authority. Then Sid, flying off on a tangent rather alarmingly, said he could fight young Kipps with one hand, an assertion young Kipps with a secret want of confidence denied. There were some vain repetitions, and the incident might have ended there, but happily, a sporting butcher boy chanced on the controversy at this stage, and insisted upon seeing fair play. The two small boys, under his pressing encouragement, did at last button up their jackets, Square and fight an edifying drawn battle, until it seemed good to the butcher boy to go on with Mrs. Hoyler's mutton. Then, according to his directions and under his experienced stage management, they shook hands and made it up. Subsequently, a little tear-stained perhaps, 
but flushed with the butcher boy's approval. Tough little kids. And with cold stones down their necks, as he advised, they sat side by side on the doctor's gate, projecting very much behind, staunching an honourable bloodshed, and expressing respect for one another. Each had a bloody nose and a black eye. Three days later, they matched to a shade. Neither had given in. And though this was tacit, neither wanted any more. It was an excellent beginning. After this first encounter, the attributes of their parents and their own relative value in battle never rose between them. And if anything was wanted to complete the warmth of their regard, it was found in a joint dislike of the eldest quodling. The eldest quodling lisped and had a silly sort of straw hat and a large pink face, all covered over with self-satisfaction, and he went to a national school with a green baize bag, a contemptible thing to do. They called him names and threw stones at him, and when he replied by threatenings, they were moved to attack and put him to fight. And after that, they broke the head of Anne Pornick's doll, so that she went home weeping loudly, a wicked and endearing proceeding. Sid was whacked, but as he explained, he wore newspaper tactically adjusted during the transaction, and really, it didn't hurt him at all. And Mrs. Pornick put her head out the shop door suddenly and threatened Kipps as he passed. Cavendish Academy, the school that had won the limited choice of Kipps' vanished mother, was established in a battered private house in the part of Hastings remotest from the sea. It was called an Academy for Young Gentlemen, and many of the young gentlemen had parents in India and other unverifiable places. Others were the sons of credulous widows, anxious as Kip's mother had been to get something a little superior to a board school education as cheaply as possible, and others again were sent to demonstrate the dignity of their parents and guardians, and of course there were boys from France. Its principal was a long lean creature of indifferent digestion and temper, who proclaimed himself on a gilt-lettered board on his front garden, George Garden Woodrow, F.S.S.C., letters indicating that he had paid certain guineas for a bogus diploma. A bleak whitewashed outhouse constituted his schoolroom, and the scholastic quality of its carved and worn desks and forms was enhanced by a slippery blackboard, and two large yellow out-of-date maps, one of Africa and the other of Wiltshire that he had picked up cheap at a sale. There were other maps and globes in his study, where he interviewed inquiring parents, but these his pupils never saw. And in a glass cupboard in the passage were several shillings worth of test tubes and chemicals, a tripod, a glass retort, and a damaged Bunsen burner, manifesting that the scientific laboratory mentioned in the prospectus was no idle boast. This prospectus, which was in dignified but incorrect English, laid particular stress on the sound preparation for a commercial career given in the academy. But the army, navy, and civil service were glanced at in an ambiguous sentence. There was something vague in the prospectus about examinational success through Woodrow, and a declaration that the curriculum included art, modern foreign languages, and a sound technical and scientific training. Then came insistence upon the moral well-being of the pupils, and an emphatic boast of the excellence of the religious instruction, so often neglected nowadays even in schools of wide repute. 
That's bound to fetch him, Mr. Woodrow had remarked when he drew up the prospectus, and in conjunction with the mortarboards, it certainly did. Attention was directed to the motherly care of Mrs. Woodrow. In reality, a small, partially effaced woman with a plaintive face and a mind above cookery. And the prospectus concluded with a phrase intentionally vague. Fair, unrestricted, and our own milk and produce. The memories Kipps carried from that school into afterlife were set in an atmosphere of stuffiness and mental muddle and included countless pictures of sitting on creaking forms, bored and idle, of blot-licking and the taste of ink, of torn books with covers that set one's teeth on edge, of the slimy surface of the laboured slates, of futive marvel playing, whispered storytelling, and of pinches and blows, and a thousand such petty annoyances being perpetually passed on, according to the custom of the place of standing up in class and being hit suddenly and unreasonably for imaginary misbehaviour, of Mr. Woodrow's raving days, when a scarcely sane injustice prevailed, of the cold vacuity of the hour of preparation before the bread and butter breakfast, and of horrible headaches, of the queer unprecedented internal feelings resulting from Mrs. Woodrow's motherly rather than intelligent cooking. 